I want you to open a Bible with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We've been going this fall through these middle chapters in John's Gospel. If you're trying to find this passage, you can find it in the Bible that's right in front of you, there in the pew rack on page 1062. We're in John chapter 10. I'm going to begin reading at verse 22. Jesus, in this chapter, has introduced himself to us as the gate for the sheep, the entrance to eternal life. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, the one who is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And yet the claims of Jesus have caused division among his opponents. Some look at him and think he's mad, he's lost his mind. Others say, well, that can't be the case. He's performed these great miracles. And so listen as I read from the Gospel of John, where in chapter 10, I'm going to begin reading at verse 22. John 10, 22. Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does, but if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Let's bow our heads in prayer. God of grace and mercy, we, we rejoice in the ministry of Jesus, our Savior. We thank you that he willingly came to fulfill your purposes, to complete your mission, to give his life as a ransom for us. Lord, we rejoice in Jesus, the good shepherd, the one who came to lay down his life with your authority given to him, to place his life in our place to take our sins upon himself. For this we give you praise. 
Lord, where we are, are wandering from your truth, Lord, we pray that through your word, your shepherd, Jesus, our Savior, would draw us back to yourself. Where we are tempted toward fear or despair, that we would find hope and comfort in the promises of your word. Lord, where we wander into questions and doubt, we would find you to be the God of truth, that we would find in you the authority of your gospel. So, Father in heaven, we come giving you praise in the name of Jesus, who is our Savior. Amen. Leah Labresco's most important decision heading into college, she says, was joining the Yale Political Union, the historic campus debating society. She notes that while many of her classmates had experience in competitive debate, that sort of rapid fire back and forth where you just pile up argument upon argument, she says that's, that's not the way the Yale Political Union worked. She says at the end of our debates, no one won. No points were awarded. But she says that doesn't mean it wasn't deeply competitive. We just didn't have judges to announce who won. And you didn't win just by piling up a, a bunch of arguments and sort of grinding your way through it. You had, to, you had to speak from what you believed passionately. And she said, so, so we kept score. We counted in converts. Now, Leah admits that most of the time these converts were measured in follow-up conversations. Somebody that you had debated with or had asked a question from the floor, you would then take out for coffee. And that might take a conversation or multiple conversations until you finally converted them to your political or ethical position. Maybe even developing a, a lifelong friend in the process, she says. But the most dramatic way to measure conversion, she says, was to break someone on the floor. That was the language that was used, the, the shorthand, that you broke someone on the floor. That meant that your argument was so devastating to them that in the moment they had to admit in front of everyone that they were wrong, that you were right, and they had to cross to your side of the debate. She said such success was rare but it was necessary if you were going to advance into leadership positions within this prestigious club on campus. In John 10, Jesus' opponents begin as a divided group. Look back at verses 20 and 21. So these are right before what I read. This is where we ended last week. After Jesus announced to them that he was the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life, in John 10, verse 20, we read, Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? And then verse 21, But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So as we begin reading in John 10, 22, we have a divided audience. But if Jesus accomplishes anything in this chapter, it's to unite them in their opposition to him. If he breaks anybody on the floor, it's to send them from his side to the side of his opponents. Tragically, they will unite in their opposition against Jesus. 
Because they come to him with a question in verse 24. How long will you keep us in suspense? How long will you kill us by waiting, is literally what it's said, which is the kind of rhetorical language that you and I say, I'm dying to find out. How long will you keep us waiting? Verse 24, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. If you are the Messiah, the promised anointed one, who is to be sent by God, the one for whom we have been waiting, if you are God's Christ, then tell us. Now, Jesus is actually, if, if, if you read all the way through the Gospel of John, up to this point, he has not yet publicly said, I am the Messiah. He's made many big and bold claims. Now, but, but you and I, as readers of the Gospel, we already know this because we got to sit in on a very private conversation and hear Jesus say this. When Jesus was with the woman of Samaria, the woman who came to the well by herself because she was an outcast even in her own town, she announces to Jesus, this is back in John chapter 4, she says in John 4, 25, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So in the midst of a debate with Jesus, she proclaims faith in the promised Messiah, the king who was to come, and then Jesus says it directly in John 4, 26, then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. So as readers of the gospel, we know that Jesus is the Messiah. We know that he is the Christ. And so he tells them that, that he's already made this plain to them. That's what he says in verse 25. I did tell you, but you did not believe. And yet the reason he hasn't, hasn't sort of made it a campaign slogan on his way through Galilee and then down into Judea is because the people in the first century had, had political and military expectations of the Messiah. They'd sort of cast aside the, the Old Testament expectations that the Messiah would come as a rescuer, that the Messiah would come as a suffering servant, and they, they, had used, they had heard that language of the anointed one. Oh, the one who, who kneels before God is anointed to be the king. That's what we need. We need a king, a king with a sword who can come and throw off the shackles of Roman oppression. We need a great military leader to lead us into our freedom. And actually, the, the context that John gives us helps us understand what's happening here. Look back in John 10, verse 22. We're told after Jesus has announced that he is the good shepherd, we read in verse 1022, then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. It's likely the month of December because that's when the feast of dedication takes place. It was a feast to remember what had happened 180 years before when the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes had conquered Jerusalem and then had done what, what no foreign king had done before, actually set up a pagan altar inside God's temple. He had desecrated their temple. And so the people began to rebel. A man was raised up, Judas, who fought against Rome, guerrilla warfare, or fought against the, the Syrians, guerrilla warfare, until they pushed them out. Judas Maccabeus, he was called. And so after reclaiming the temple, his family, which took that name Maccabeus, they rededicated the temple to God. It's a festival of light where they lit candles that lasted eight days. 
I mean, see, you and I today, we don't call it the Feast of Dedication. If you have friends or neighbors, they call it Hanukkah. But it was a, it was a political remembrance. It, it wasn't an Old Testament command that this was one of the feasts you were to keep. It was a, it was a social and political observance. And so in this moment when, when that, those nationalistic ideals are high, to step forward and say, I am the Messiah, people would think, oh, like Judas Maccabeus. And, and if you remember, well, I had to look this up so you won't remember this. Maccabeus, it mean, it's a nickname. His name was Judah, and they called him Judah Maccabeus because that means the hammer. He is Judas the hammer who will throw it down with anyone. He will crush his opponents so violently that that name, that nickname, is taken and given to his brothers who will rule after him. I mean, it's, it's like he steps onto the scene, and in this corner, Judas the hammer. And so for Jesus to step up and say, Jesus the Messiah, it would be as if he throws off the robe, puts on the champion belt, and steps forward, Jesus the Messiah, because no one would understand what he was saying. They would all hear it shouted by the announcer, as if finally somebody who's going to throw down with Rome and win this war. See, his questioners come to him and say, how long will you, you're killing us by making us wait. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. But their question, you see, isn't actually designed to bring them to a place of faith. They're not coming because they want to believe in the Messiah. They want to expose him as a false Messiah. They want him to, to lay claim and then get crushed by Rome. I mean, they know this army that he has dragging behind him can do nothing. And so if he tries to throw on the championship belt in the first round, it's going to be taken away from him. So they don't come as those coming for faith. They come looking for an excuse to reject Jesus. But he says to them, I told you. This isn't a secret. I haven't kept it hidden. I've been saying it all along. I've been explaining to you the very reason that I came. Now, I haven't used the word Messiah in public because you would all misunderstand it. But the miracles that I do, verse 25, those speak for me. You yourselves in your own debate know that they speak. Because could a demon-possessed man really heal the blind? Could, could an enemy of God really accomplish the very purposes for which God sent? See, the miracles I do, Jesus says, they are done in my Father's name, and those miracles speak for me. You already have a witness before you. The miracles that I've performed show that I'm even stronger than the hammer. He kept a candle lit for eight days. I healed a man who had been blind. I've raised the, the sick. I've, I've healed those that were broken. And then Jesus comes back to the language that he's used already in this chapter, the language of a shepherd caring for his sheep. He tells them in verse 26, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. Now, we might have expected the argument to work the other way, that, that you, well, you if, if you, if you believed, then you'd prove you were my sheep. But he, he actually says, because you don't belong to me, of course you're going to reject me. Because you're not of my fold or of my, of my flock, you've turned against me. You don't believe 
because you are unwilling to listen to my voice. You don't belong to me. When you hear me speak, you don't hear the truth. Jesus says, my sheep, verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And here in this passage, Jesus gives us a bold declaration that not only is he the shepherd who will chase down his sheep, not only is he the shepherd who will rescue his sheep, he's already told us in chapter 10, he's the shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep, but look at what he says. He is the shepherd who will hold onto his sheep forever. He says, I give them eternal life, verse 28, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I hold on to them forever. There is no enemy that could defeat them. Not even death itself could pry them from my hands. They're mine. They belong to me forever. Because my Father, verse 29, who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. See, when I hold on to them, it's, it's God in heaven holding on to them. Jesus gives us the assurance that when we put our trust in him, that we really belong to him. See, and that's an encouragement to us if we come to Jesus feeling like our faith is weak. Feeling like, I, I want to believe Jesus, but, but I just don't know that I really have put it all together. I don't know that I've gotten myself cleaned up enough. I don't know that my faith is strong enough. But you see what Jesus is saying? It's not, it's not the strength of your faith that matters. It's the strength of your Savior. Even if your grip on him is weak, he will never let you go. See, a weak faith in a strong Savior is sufficient to save. But actually, once you understand that, then your faith is strengthened. Because you know, well, if Jesus will hold on to me, then, then he's the kind of Savior I can really trust. See, the strength of your Savior actually increases the strength of your faith, but it's not your faith that saves you. That's just the, 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 the action that you take in response to the work of Jesus and what he has done for you. And so when Jesus makes the claim that, that he holds on to his sheep because the Father holds on to them, he says it then in verse 30, I and the Father of one are one. Now the Jews, he's broken them right on the floor. Those that were on his side now cross to oppose him. Because it's not just those that thought he was demon-possessed and raving mad. It's, it's everyone who, and what does it tell us in verse 31? Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Okay, I mean, we're not talking skipping pebbles. We're talking finding something big enough that you think if you smashed it on someone, it would break bones and crush them. And so that's what they do. They find stones in order to take him down, mob justice, he will be destroyed. And John reminds us with the, at the beginning of verse 31 that this isn't the first time this has happened. Again, they picked up stones to stone him. Because we saw just right before the miracle that has been the controversy, right before Jesus healed the man who had been born blind, well, Jesus had made a claim just as big as this claim. They told him, well, we trust in Abraham. He said, well, Abraham was looking and trusting in me. He was looking forward to seeing me. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. This is the end of chapter 8. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now here, when, when they pick up stones to stone him, Jesus is going to keep the argument going. Because in verse 32, he said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. 
for which of these do you stone me? If you're going to kill me, let's at least be honest about why. I came from the Father. I performed many great miracles by the power and authority of the Father. Which of these is a reason that you want to kill me? Because the evidence that's before you is the evidence of the miracles. That's what speaks the truth and the authority of who God is. And they say, verse 33, we're not stoning you for any of these, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. You have blasphemed. You've done, that's worse than taking God's name in vain. You've actually stepped into God's position, pushed him off the throne and said, no, no, that's me. You should bow and worship me. Now here, they at least actually understand the kind of claims he's making. Because that is exactly what, Je that is what Jesus is saying, that he sits at God's right hand. He sits on the heavenly throne because he is the Son of God. He said it in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And then he'll push the claim right back at them. Now he begins his response in verse 34 with a, with a quotation that, that initially feels a little strange to us. They say, we're going to kill you because you've blasphemed. And Jesus says, well, let's take a look at the evidence. Look, look at verse 34 back in John 10. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? All right, now, maybe your Bible has a little, a little letter or, or a, a number there to, to take you to the bottom of your page. Mine tells me that this comes from Psalm 82, 6. So if you flip to the Old Testament, and so Jesus using the description of the law, the command of God to describe the whole of the Hebrew Bible, when you go back to Psalm, Psalm 82, verse 6, we read that God is the one who, who lives in judgment among the gods, lowercase g. He is the one with all power to defend the weak and the fatherless, the poor and the oppressed. He is the one who comes to rescue the weak and the needy to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And, and then in verse 6, it's a quotation. God is speaking, and it's Psalm 82, 6, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. Now, to be fair, both in ancient times and modern times, this is one of those verses that leaves readers sort of scratching their heads. Who's he talking to? Is it the, the gods of verse 1, the angelic beings in heaven? Is it the gods of the nations, the false gods, the demonic powers perhaps even? Or is he speaking to the leaders of God's people, calling the, them as if they are lowercase little gods ruling in his place? Or is he speaking to the nation as a whole? And, and here's the thing. For Jesus' argument to work in John 10, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which of those interpretations is exactly right, because his argument is, if God in heaven, capital G God, can call any lesser creature a God, lowercase g, then what are you all upset if I stand before you and call myself God? In one sense, he's, he's sort of throwing a theological argument back in their face and saying, all right, you've gotten yourselves all worked up here, but you haven't actually stopped to look at any of the evidence. 
just the word would be enough to condemn me. But God applies that word Elohim in the Hebrew. God. It, the, the very same word that we use to describe God with a capital G, he uses to describe others, whether they're angels or human authorities. They're lesser beings than God. But then Jesus actually says, but if he could describe anyone else with that term, well, wouldn't it be appropriate to describe me? If he could call them gods, to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, we're back in John 10, verse 36 now. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Do you see what he's saying is, if, if that term could be applied to any lesser being, then surely it's appropriate to apply to me. Because I stand above all of them as the very one sent with the authority of the Father, the one sent by his power into this world. And so then why do you accuse me of blasphemy when I say, I am God's son? Okay, now he said it directly. I mean, now we're, now we're not left in any doubt. And, and maybe it's important for us to kind of stop here and, and notice that there is a, a shared understanding of Scripture between Jesus and his opponents that, that maybe we as modern people don't share. The reason he can jump back to Psalm 82 is because they believe Psalm 82 was given by God. They have trusted in God as their source of authority. And so Jesus, and he says it directly in verse 25, these, these are the ones to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. He says that he believes the scripture has authority and power. Now maybe when you, when you hear that kind of argument, you say, well, I mean, this is nonsense. Who cares about some, some obscure quotation from Psalm 82? Like, does it matter? I mean, I mean, that would be like saying, you know, a leprechaun told me. Like, what do I care? Like, that's not evidence, that's nonsense. But, but I, I would want to ask you then, on what would you base these kinds of ultimate questions? On whose authority would you trust? Where would you turn for your source of understanding? Because I think so often we just assume that, well, I've just ended up here and I'm already right. And so we never actually even, even question where we got this truth from. But Jesus is saying it directly. If you follow Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, then your authority is the very word of God, the scripture, which cannot be broken. See, when we have a, a debate about what's most important and what's, what's most significant, what's ultimate, as Christians, we're just going to kind of lay it in front of you and tell you, hey, this is the source material. This is where we got it. I'm not hiding it from you. God spoke it. God gave this to us with his authority, and so I can trust in it. I, I really am just wanting to kind of challenge you. Have you ever even thought about where you get your claims about what's most important in the world, your source of truth? Because Jesus has shown them the truth. I mean, he's visibly shown it to them in his miracles. He's let them see glimpses of what God's kingdom looks like. When the world is restored by God's power to the way that it should be, when the, the effects of sin and our rebellion against God are, are undone and fixed by the rescuer, the Savior, Jesus has given us pictures in his miracles, these signs which were meant to speak to us the very truth of who God is. He has come to do the work of his Father. That's what he says. He says, verse 37, don't believe me unless I do what the Father does. You've got 
a source, the very word of God tests me against that source. Am I coming, like Psalm 82 says, to, to heal the brokenhearted, to care for the, the weak and the fatherless? Am I coming to bring justice where there wasn't justice? Am I the one who comes, as Psalm 82 says, as the, the one who comes as the judge of all the earth? Just measured against what God says he would do. That's the very thing I'm doing. That's the mission that Jesus says, that's what I've come to do. I've said it to you plainly. You just don't want to listen because you're not my sheep, because you're rebelling against me, because you've turned against the Father. He has come to complete the mission of the Father. He is the good shepherd, the one who will lay down his life for the sheep. And so he concludes at the very, almost the very same place that he, that he was when they picked up their stones. In verse 30, which this is what prompted them to pick up stones to kill him, he said, I and the Father are one. And so in verse 38, he repeats it, but actually presses it even further. That, that you should believe the miracles, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. One theologian calls this a coherence of love. That Jesus is showing us the love of God, the mission of God, the very actions of God are displayed in what Jesus is willing to do. And it's not merely his miracles that have come before this. It won't even be the great miracle which will come in chapter 11. Jesus has come to, to die on the cross, to give his life. Jesus has come to then take his life up again, to be raised from the dead so that he could give us the gift of eternal life, that he could prove to us the depth of God's love. And so we read that the Jesus, after this confrontation, while he's turned the, the crowd against him, as judge in confronting them, we read in verse 39, again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. See, he, he leaves not because he's afraid to die. That's the very reason he's come. He escapes so that he can complete his mission, that he can show them with greater clarity his miracles, that he can teach his disciples what will happen at his death and his resurrection so that they will be prepared, so that, that he can fulfill the scriptures when he dies by being shamed on the cross. And so then Jesus leaves. He leaves Jerusalem. He crosses the Jordan. He's now east of the Jordan. That's the place where John had been baptizing back in those early days of his ministry. And many people came to Jesus there. We read in verse 41 that though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And so in that place, far from the seat of power, cross the Jordan. In that place, many believed in Jesus. Because they'd seen the miracles and they saw that it testified to the truth of what had been announced to them. John the Baptist stood and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John had, had declared that Jesus is the very Son of God that he was the giver of eternal life. And so now, seeing the miracles of Jesus, having heard the testimony of the, the prophet, they put their trust in Jesus. See, Jesus may have only succeeded in Jerusalem at turning his opponents against him. If he broke them on the floor, it was to break against him. But for those who really listened, 
who are willing to actually hear the testimony of the miracles, see the work of Jesus, they were the ones who believed. Leah Labresco calls her involvement in the Yale Political Union an essential decision because it opened her to actually investigate deep claims. Not just political or ethical questions, but even religious questions. Leah grew up in a family that, that's described as a family where atheism was simply assumed. She, she explains, religion didn't really rise to the level of plausibility for me to think about denying it as a major part of my identity. She's, she didn't call herself an atheist because it was so irrelevant, why would you even ever talk about it? She said that would be like just going around describing myself as a UFO skeptic. I mean, who cares? Like, you don't need that information about me. It's totally irrelevant. She says partly because she didn't know anyone who took the claims of Christ seriously. She'd never heard anyone explain who Jesus was. In a, in a history class in her high school, they learned about the Reformation and Martin Luther, and, and one of her classmates asked, wait, are there like Lutherans today? And none of them had any idea. But when she showed up at Yale, she met Christians who took their faith seriously, who actually believed in Jesus. And her involvement at the Yale Political Union, not a, not a Christian organization, I mean, you hear it in the name, the political union, it taught her that she had to be willing to admit when she had been wrong. She had to be willing to change her mind when faced with new evidence. She says it was not only considered an honor to break someone on the floor, and, and that was necessary if you wanted to be elected to one of the, the office, officer's positions. She said, but if you wanted to be considered for a leadership position, you were also asked, so have you ever been broken on the floor? And Leah, Leah continues, the correct answer is yes. Because it wasn't very likely that you'd walked in as a freshman with the most accurate politics, ethics, and meta-ethics. If you hadn't had to jettison some of your ideas several years in, we had our doubts about how honestly and deeply you were engaging in debate. See, sometimes you have to admit you were wrong. Otherwise, you never examine any of your assumptions. And in arrogance, you say, well, of course, everything I've always believed has to be the absolute truth. And so when Leah first heard her classmates explain the miracles and ministry of Jesus, she had to stop and consider his claims. She couldn't rely on her past assumptions that religion was empty or that God must be dead. She had to pick up and read the Gospels. She encountered the Savior, and she follows Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the anointed King. Jesus is the very Son of God, our rescuer who takes away our sins. Will you be honest enough to listen, to hear the evidence of the miracles, and to put your trust in Jesus the Christ? Let me pray. Father, we rejoice 
in the work of Jesus, who takes skeptics and draws them in love to himself. Lord, we see it in the witness of John 11. We, we hear it in the, the testimony of those who have put their trust in Christ. We see it in the, in the work of our Savior, in those that are sitting with us in this sanctuary. That you have taken sinners who were living for themselves, rebelling against you, and you have rescued us. Father in heaven, we give you praise that through the, the death of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. Through his resurrection, we have the hope of eternal life. And so, Lord, let us be honest enough to hear your word, to respond as your sheep, to listen to the voice of our Savior, to acknowledge that he is the Christ, our King. He is our Savior, and he is your Son. Father, we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen.